ready for Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse number 31. I, I have to warn everybody, and, and probably just for me, but I, um, when, I, when I come to sections of, of the Bible like this, sometimes I get nervous that, you know, maybe somebody in here might think that I'm either, you know, pointing it at them or I'm intending to, to, to machine gun a sermon or, you know, but, and, and passages like this can be hard to cover. So I, I, I don't want to be nervous over it. I don't want to, you know, but my style is, and what I do is when I, I just teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And, and that way, when I get to a certain topic of the Bible, I just cover it where we are on that Sunday. And I don't necessarily know where we're going to be, when we're going to be there, but God does. And, and when we get to a certain topic, hard or soft, we, we don't skirt it. And we just, we just teach. It's one of the beauties of teaching through the word. Well, today we find ourselves in a place with kind of a heavy topic that Jesus is teaching. And so um, we just, we got to cover it. And the topic is heaven and hell. Really, the topic is a, a term that we use in church sometimes that you might have heard called the unpardonable sin. So again, this is what Jesus is covering where we are in Matthew chapter 12. So that's what we're going to cover in church today. I, I want to do it justice and I want to, um, you know, try to, again, not not skirt the issue and yet again, not not use it as a scare tactic. Now, I, I think in, in, in church sometimes maybe a little bit of scare tactic is healthy for people. You know, sometimes you go to churches and it's hellfire and brimstone and the preacher is just trying to scare Jesus into you. He's trying to scare, you know, the hell out of you, literally. And, and, and Jesus into you, or, you know, maybe he's trying to um, guilt you into something. And, you know, sometimes with the scare tactics and the guilt tactics, they, they work for a moment. But the problem is, by the time you hit the key fob and you're in the parking lot, you've already forgotten. You're already thinking about what you're going to have for lunch and the scare tactic and the, you know, because basically the Bible is very clear. This is something I want to, I want to, I, I want to be a theme as we go through this. And I want everyone to catch this right here. The Bible is very clear on what changes people's lives. The Bible is very clear on what motivates people to become Christians. Anybody know what that is? It's the love of Jesus. The Bible says in these exact words, the love of Jesus constrains me. I think that's, that's King James Version. The love of Jesus compels me. So do you know what's going to encourage your neighbor, encourage your friend, is going to um, move somebody that you're witnessing to, to a faith in Jesus Christ? It's the love of Jesus. It's the absolute power and love that Jesus died on a cross and rose again. Now, there is a reality. Some people, I, I think personally, um, they, they, they don't cover the scriptures in the Bible where Jesus talked about heaven and hell. And, and the reality is the, the New Testament has as much more to say about hell than it does heaven. And, and, is, and, and, and much to say about money and heaven and hell and, you know, these main topics in life. And so it's, it's healthy to cover them. And I think a little bit of scare tactic for us is, is good for us every once in a while, right? A buddy of mine worked at a sandwich shop. And, and when he, he had to use a slicer all day, he worked in the back and in... in, in um, where it was just, you know, cutting the meat, preparing all this stuff. And so in his training, they brought, they showed him a video of footage of other people having, um, slicer accidents, people's fingers getting cut off and maimed and, you know, this gory video that he has to watch with the intention that he would respect the slicer. Right. And when you see somebody else's finger getting cut off, you're like, ah, oh, maybe I'll pay attention when I'm slicing the meat. Well, it was supposed to be a scare tactic and it was meant to keep him safe. And so here, what we're covering today, let's, let's just take a look at it before I keep talking around it too much. Um, as you know, we are in a section here in Matthew where Jesus is um, fighting with the Pharisees. He's constantly in a battle with the Pharisees and the issue is a matter of the heart. And last week, these guys were, were just kept getting lower and lower and lower and lower. And finally, Jesus is going to say right here, okay, that's enough. You guys have gone too far. Scary place, scary position where these Pharisees are going to find themselves. And they, they did something that was blasphemous told, towards the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is going to say to them, you're going to go to hell. Because of the sin, but the issue is a matter of the heart. 
And, and so Jesus is constantly in this battle with these religious folks of his day because, you know, the, the Pharisees were a group of, of religious people who tried to keep the law and the Old Testament, but really didn't have a heart after God. Isaiah said of these people that you, you sing to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And we never want to be in that place that we do church with our lips, but our heart is far from God because God is interested in your heart. God is interested in relationship with you and intimacy with you, know you personally and, and to be a father, a good, good father to you, that his word would be a light unto your path and a lamp unto your feet, that it would guide you through the everyday paths of life like a good shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And this is the design and the desire of God in your life is relationship and is, is, is a shepherd and a sheep and the intimacy that they have as they walk through life together and as they do life together and as the shepherd protects and provides and guides and leads the sheep. That's God's heart and design for you. And, and so here the Pharisees are, 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 are just missing that heart. And they believe that God is more impressed with their works, that God is more impressed with their actions apart from a real true condition of the heart. And so in verse number 31, we get to the end of this fight that they had um, in the last, what we studied last week, beginning in verse 22. Now, do you remember just real quickly, and then we are going to get to 31. Jesus had just got done casting out demons. And it says there was a group of people that were watching Jesus cast out these demons. And it said this group of people, do you remember what, what, what state that group of people was in? They, they, were, they were on the fence. They, they were watching Jesus cast out demons and they couldn't decide which way to go. Wow, this is the Messiah or maybe he's not. But, but they're starting to get to the point where it's moving them. And so the Pharisees see this group of people that are, that are moved by Jesus casting out demons and doing the miracles and his teaching. And so the Pharisees show up in order to discourage those people that are on the fence. They finally just go as low ball as they can go. And they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And it's at this that Jesus responds in verse 31. And he says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. And anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or or in the age to come. Now, for some of you who might miss that, just very clearly, if Jesus says you will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come, where are you going? You're, 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 you're not going to eternity, to heaven, to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. You, you, you are not forgiven in this life or in the one to come. Jesus, in describing um, this scene other times, he talks about, you know, this group of people that came to him and said, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did good works in your name. And Jesus said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. When Jesus said to them, depart from me, where were they going? We don't like the word, but they were going to hell for all of eternity. And it's a concept that, that the Bible is very clear on. It's a concept that, again, the, the New Testament deals with and judges. And, and the people here that are guilty of the unpardonable sin, and, and I'll read it for you in Revelation chapter 21. But in Revelation chapter 21 at the great white throne judgment, it says that they were thrown into a lake of eternal fire. And that Hades and, and hell was cast into a lake of eternal fire. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. And so Jesus is dealing with this and, and Jesus talks about it. And it's a reality. The reality is that you were created to live for all of eternity. And the issue is not whether you live for eternity or not. The issue is where you spend eternity. And, and, and Jesus, now listen, what, what's powerful about this, let me, let me, I'm going to have you guys turn with me, if you will. Let's go first to 1 John. So if you get to Revelation, just go all the way to the right. When you get to Revelation, go back one book and you'll be in 1 John. Now in 1 John, in chapter um, 1, John, he picks up on this concept. 
And, and John, Grandpa John, who also wrote Revelation, the Revelator, he, he comes to this part. And listen to what he says about, about sin. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from most of our sin. Is that what, was that what John said? No. John said, I'm sorry, verse number seven, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from almost all of our sin. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? It says, listen, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, the power of God to cleanse you from all sin is, is super powerful. Do you realize that the very people that put a bag on Jesus's head and punched him, they punched him so many times, Isaiah says, that his face was unrecognizable as a man. You know, we see these cute pictures of Jesus on a cross, but the reality is the real Jesus on the real cross, his face would have been so bruised and so marred that you would not be able to recognize him as a man. He would have looked deformed. He would have looked like, have you ever seen, I saw a guy, I went to the hospital and did a hospital call for a guy that was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And he got hit on one side of his face and almost a direct line right down the middle of his face. And this side of his face was so black and blue. His lip was hanging down here. And this side of his face was normal. He was like that two-faced guy in the Batman. But it, it, it made an impression on me to see um, the trauma that can happen. And, and thinking of what Isaiah says that Jesus was unrecognizable. They ripped his beard out of his face and they spit loogies on him. And he had their spit running down his face as they, as they mocked him and they, they punched him. They, they put a crown of thorns on his head and it says that it didn't, they didn't like the way that it said on his head. So they beat it into his head with their clubs. They put a cross on his back and they made him carry it down the Via Dolorosa from the place of, um, where they, in the praetorium where they beat him to the place where they were going to hang him on a cross. And they, they yelled at him and screamed at him and kicked him as he carried a cross down the Via Dolorosa to the point where he could not take one more step. And he continued to collapse under the weight of the cross. And the Roman soldiers would hit him and they would kick him with their spears and they'd say, get up. And when he couldn't take one more step, the soldiers realized no matter how many more times we hit him, yell at him, beat him, kick him, he cannot carry that cross one more step. And they got a guy out of the crowd to carry the, Jesus's cross the rest of the way down the Via Dolorosa. When they got to Calvary's cross, they nailed him on a cross and they took nine inch nails and a hammer in his hand. And a man in history, a Roman soldier, took a hammer and he nailed it through Jesus's feet. And then they, they hoisted Jesus up on the cross. Crucifixion, Roman crucifixion was designed to, to make you suffer. So you died. You know how you died on a cross? Seems strange. You died on a cross from asphyxiation. You suffocated to death. Because in this position on the cross, you, you can't breathe and your lungs would, um, someone figured out, you know, some psychopath in history figured out that this would, would you couldn't breathe. So you couldn't get air. So you couldn't breathe. And then the nails in your hands and your feet in the pain. And it says that every one of Jesus's joints were dismembered and his muscles were, were um, cramped. You ever, had a, you ever had a cramp in your calf or in a muscle and how bad that hurts? <clears throat> every one of his muscles are in a cramped position. And with that pain, he has to pick himself up on the cross so he can breathe. And when he picks himself up on the cross, his lungs open up. As long as he's here, he can breathe. And then he stumps back down and he can't breathe. And depending on the position, you could do this for a while and it would cause lots of pain. And it was the design of a Roman cross. And Jesus, as we know, he didn't make it that long on the cross. And the guy that held the hammer that put the nail in Jesus's hands, the guys that punched him in the face. You know, what the last thing Jesus said before he died was. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus loved those people. Jesus loved those people. Do you realize that dude that put the nail in Jesus's feet? He could be in heaven. The Bible doesn't tell us how many of them. But I know some of them went on and repented and got saved. We know one of the Roman soldiers was so moved by the whole event that he got saved. We're going to hang out with that guy. Jesus is not mad at him. 
Did you guys do something worse than actually put the nail in Jesus's feet? Anybody in here do something worse? Larry, show them out if they did, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't think so, right? But, but that Jesus can forgive. The point is Jesus can forgive, as John tells us, all your sins. There's nothing you can do that's so terrible that God's love won't cover it. Amen? God's, God, God's love is so powerful. God's love is so thorough in your life. But listen, there is a point. And Jesus doesn't, is not contradicting what John says when John says that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, can forgive you of all your sins. It's an invitation. But there is a, there is a line. The Bible says we know not where, we know not when, but there is a line that if you cross it, the blood of Jesus Christ will not cover this particular sin and you will die and go to hell, the Bible says. And you had to, Hebrews tells us, crawl through the blood of Jesus Christ to get there. Because it's not God's intention. God doesn't send anybody to hell. All, all God does is at some point, he honors your request. I don't want nothing to do with Jesus. I don't believe in God. I don't believe there's a Jesus. And, and maybe you're here today and you're in that boat. Listen, that's okay. We can, you're, you're welcome here. You're, 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 you're free to believe that. Just listen to what I'm saying. Don't write it off. And I'm not mad at you for that stance or because you don't there, you're not there yet. But you, you, you say, I don't, want, I don't want Jesus in my life. I don't want Jesus in my life. I don't believe there's a God or I believe in evolution and, you know, or whatever the thing is. And you go on and on and on. And, and, and God continues to call you and draw you as the power of the Holy Spirit is designed to do. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to draw you to Jesus, draw you to Jesus. Offer you this forgiveness that, that, that John offers. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, can forgive you of all your sins. And you reject it, reject it, reject it, reject it, reject it, reject it. At, at some point, is, is God, God is a gentleman... For him to force you then to spend all of eternity with him when you didn't want nothing to do with him? He's not going to do that. He's not going to force you against your will to go hang out with him through all of eternity. He says, okay, it's fine. You do, it, then this is, you know, hell, hell does have some really scary descriptions in the Bible. But ultimately, this is the bottom line. Listen, this is what hell is. Hell is eternal separation from Jesus, from God. That's, that's the, basically the bottom line. You, you will spend somewhere that somehow is is eternally separated from the presence of God. And that just makes it hell in itself. Forget the details of fire and gnashing of teeth and all those other things in the Bible where the worm doesn't die. God God will honor. Now what the, what is the unpardonable sin? Let's go back to Matthew because I don't again I don't want to contradict what John is saying that the blood of Jesus Christ will forgive all sins, but Jesus gives us a warning that the blood of Jesus Christ will cover all sins except one, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let's make sure that none of us are guilty of that, right? Okay, so he says, I've already read, did I read it yet? Um, does anybody know trivia time? The Bible is very specific and it says that the Holy Spirit has a ministry here on earth. What does the Bible say is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Let him know. You don't know either? It is to do what? Someone got it? Reveal Jesus. And, and in that, the, the term is convict the world of sin. That the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. What does that mean? That means that it's the Holy Spirit's job to draw you, to call you, to speak to you, to, to encourage you to receive the free gift of salvation in your life. The Holy Spirit is the one. The Bible says there's three relationships with the Holy Spirit we see in the book of Acts. Anybody know what they are? Pada and Epi, right? We studied through that. The Pada and Epi are the three moves of the Holy Spirit we see in the Bible. The para means the Holy Spirit comes alongside you. The N, E-N, is a funny Greek way to spell our English I-N. The Holy Spirit comes in you. And the para and a P, and the P, E-P-I, is a Greek word that means the Holy Spirit flows through you. The power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. That's what we see the function of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the men in the Bible, in your life, in my life today. That first one, the, the para, we've all experienced it. 
We're not believers. We, 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 we feel the, the Holy Spirit speaking to us, calling us, drawing us. At some point, for some of us, we've, we've responded to the Holy Spirit's call in our life, and we've asked Jesus to come into our heart. We, but the Holy Spirit has been, regardless of who you are and where you are in this room, at some point in your life, multiple or few times, the Holy Spirit has been calling you and drawing you unto receiving the forgiveness that Jesus offers for you. And, and, and for me, I rejected that, that at 14. At 14 years old, I grew up not in church, not, not, a, not around church, not in a Christian home. My brother sold drugs in the neighborhood. My sister was addicted to heroin. Um, grew up on LA and, you know, two miles from Compton this way, a mile from Inglewood that way, two miles from the beach this way. And, um, you know, my brother sold drugs in the neighborhood and um, no, no church in my life, no, no home. I was headed down the same path the rest of my brothers and sisters were going. In seventh and eighth grade, a neighbor kid invited me to come to church, my first experience in church. At the end of eighth grade, spending two years in a youth group and going for all the wrong reasons. And, um, you know, but in eighth grade, the pastor pulled me aside and he said, he said, man, you've been coming now for two years. And um, he said, you don't quite cuss at me just as much as you did when you first got here. And, you know, and, and you, you seem to be growing and really like the Bible studies. And he said, do you want to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, pray this prayer with me. And so I, I followed him in a prayer that we call the sinner's prayer. But I didn't get saved because I rejected the work of the Spirit in my life. In my heart, I said, I'm getting ready for high school. Um, I'm going to be ostracized. I'm going to be a nerd. I'm not going to have any fun. I like some of the sins that I'm currently doing. And if I give my life to Jesus, then I, I won't be able to have any fun anymore is what I thought. A lie of Satan. I'll miss out on some stuff that I would have done. And so I, I rejected the, 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 the call of the Holy Spirit to give my life fully to Jesus that day. And then for the next, from junior high, 14 years old until I was 20, the worst six years of my life. And by the time I was 20, as many of you know, my life was in a really bad place that God never intended for me. And I would have avoided all that trouble had I, had I not rejected the Holy Spirit at 14. And no doubt along the way, there was other calls of God. And that para wasn't always, it wasn't that, that Holy Spirit coming alongside me through my life. You know, e even after I got saved. My dad died when I was a year old. And uh, one, one of the verses that God told me was that in Psalms, it says that God is a father to the fatherless. And, and I can look back growing up with no dad in my home and, 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 and seeing times where even as a sinner, the Holy Spirit was working in my heart and protecting me from certain things that would have got me killed or got me put in jail or destroyed my life for good. And how God's Holy Spirit was gracious even before I received him in my life. And that is the para. That is the work of the Holy Spirit calling you and drawing you. And it's very gentle. And, and, it's, and it's consistent. But what the unpardonable sin is that will cause people to go to hell. And what the Pharisees are guilty of here in, in, in Matthew chapter 12. Is rejecting the Holy Spirit. That para, that work of the Holy Spirit over and 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 over again. And eventually, I don't know where it is, but somewhere there's a line that you can cross where you've committed the unpardonable sin. Now, I want to tell you, some people, um, we, we had a lady, 80 years old, in tears, literally, emotionally, distraught, broken up. And she came in for pastoral counsel because she had believed that 40 years ago as a young woman, she committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and she hasn't walked with the Lord since because she got, you know, counsel in some church or somebody told her that she committed the, or she read somewhere and didn't understand and, and, and believed she committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And she was bawling and she was upset. And, 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 and Pastor Gerald, Lydia's dad, looked at her and he said, you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And she said, how do you know? I haven't even told you what I did yet. And he said, the very fact that you're here and that you care and that you're emotional about it proves you've never committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because for those that are guilty or those that commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they, they're, they're, they're aloof. They, don't, they have no desire to repent. They're, they're not broken. They're, they don't have any desire. They don't feel like, oh, maybe they're like they're out there. They're done. They're, they're established in that position and no desire to repent. 
And I don't want to, you know, the reality is, I think for 99.999% of human history, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is committed when you die, if you've, reje- if you've lived your whole life and rejected Jesus when you die. Now, the danger is, tomorrow's not promised to any of us. Tragic accident on the freeway yesterday and two people died. Right? You just never know. And, and, and for them, whether you're 15 or whether you're 95, when you breathe your last, that's where most people will commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they died without the forgiveness of Jesus. Now, it's possible to commit that while you're alive, but I think it's very few that could get there. But me personally, I don't even want to step on that road. And I know it's way, way, way out there and I'm not, not going to happen. But this is a concept. Now, let, let me run with this, you guys. I got lots of other stuff to cover. But if we don't today, just, just forgive me, okay? Because I just want to really unpack this. Um, for me as a believer, one of the concepts that God gave me as a young believer was that I, I never, and really as somebody who wanted to be a pastor, wanted to be used by God, and wanted really to keep a heart, a soft heart that God could use, that God could speak to you, that God could correct, that God could move in any direction that God desired to move it. There's a verse in, in, in the New Testament that says, when, when we harden our heart towards God, when we resist that, that calling of the Holy Spirit, when we sin, what happens is our heart gets one layer of hard. So it says that the way that the Bible describes it is it pass a hot iron over your heart. So every, every time we, we, we turn from God, we rebel against God, we don't do what God wants us to do, we keep to ourselves over an issue, we commit sin, we live in sin, every time you do that, you pass one more layer of that iron over your heart. Now, what's going to happen if that iron goes over your heart too many times? Your heart is going to become hard. And God can't use that. It's not pliable. It's not movable. God wants to move it. And so me being afraid, like, God, I never want to have a hard heart. Like being so over the top about wanting to make sure that I kept my heart soft. You know, King David said, God created me a clean heart, oh God, that I might not sin against you. And David, who was broken over his sin. And David, you guys know David's story, right? King David was an adulterer, a murderer. That dude had a crazy life of sin, man. He didn't, he didn't walk it out really straight at all. But the amazing grace of God continued to pour out on that guy's life. And what happened was King David really became somehow not, I'm not recommending this for anybody, but somehow he was really, really sincerely repentant and broken over his sins. And when he was, he would, he would pray and ask God with these most eloquent words that the Holy Spirit gave him that are recorded in the Psalms about God keeping his heart soft and not allowing that iron to go over his heart. Pharaoh is somebody who committed the unpardonable sin while alive. You guys know the story of Pharaoh? Here's the interesting story about King Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the one that uh, Moses came to Pharaoh, that Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go, right? You guys watched the movie, right? Or the cartoon? What was it called? Prince of Egypt. You guys seen it, right? You know that story. So Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, not today. Pharaoh said, nope. But thanks for asking. And uh, so then so then God turns the water into blood. And then he says, OK, that should scare Pharaoh. And and and, and Moses comes back and he says, Pharaoh, um, let my people go. God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, not today. And so then the next plague, the next plague, the next plague. Well, through that progression in, in that story there in Egypt, every time Pharaoh said no to God, it says these words. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Five, six, seven times. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then we get to this really scary place in Pharaoh's life where he commits this sin of, of, of um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. And it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, listen, maybe you're new to the Bible or this story. And, and, and to think about that, about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it just seems immoral. It seems not fair. How could God harden a guy's heart and then judge him for having a hard heart? It's, it's immoral. It's not right. How could God do that? How can God give you a hard heart and then send you to hell because you have a hard heart? Well, God gave me that hard heart. And that's what it would sound like happened with Pharaoh. But that's not what happened. 
That's not what happened. What you talking about, Willis? All right, let me tell you what I'm talking about. No, seriously, the, the term, when, when it comes to God, it's a different word. It's a different idea. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's a choice. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's a choice. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, it, it's, the word means established. Pharaoh made a decision and God honored it is what it means. God established or honored a decision that Pharaoh made. God didn't make Pharaoh's heart hard. He didn't make it more hard. All he did was say, okay, if that's what you want. And by, and the grace of God continued to come into Pharaoh's life before that. The opportunity to repent, the opportunity, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our New Testament living, right? Of calling and drawing. And there comes a point where God says, okay. Enough is enough. And he establishes your heart. And that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is rejecting the work of God's Holy Spirit in your life. Amen? All right. Any questions? Um, so as we go on, um, we get to this next section. And it says, um, 33. Trying to decide if I'm just going to give an altar call right now. Let's pray. I'm still going to teach. I got seven minutes. You guys don't turn your head and look at my clock. That always makes me nervous. But um, I, let's pray for you right now. And then I'm going to finish this chapter. May, maybe there's somebody in here and maybe God's Holy Spirit. And again, apart from me, but maybe God's Holy Spirit has been calling you or drawing you. And, and you want to make sure that your heart and your life is right with Jesus. Now, now I'm going to lead us in a prayer as a church. And I want to tell you, I prayed the same prayer at 14. I didn't get saved. Because the magic is not in the words. Salvation is not a magical potion. Salvation is a surrender of your heart and life to Jesus. It's trusting Jesus with your whole life. And unfortunately, God's not going to take 95% of your life. He's not going to take 99. So don't offer him 99 or 95. Just harden your heart and wait for the next opportunity when you're ready to give 100. Scary place to be, but that's really your option. Because God's only going to accept all of your life. And, that, and, that, and listen, Jesus said, if, if you give all of your life, he's going to give it all back to you. Jesus said, you want to have a blessed life, you want to find life, then you lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And if you hang on to your life, in my case, I hang on to my life at 14 and I lost it. And I didn't find life until I gave it away. And when I gave my life really to Jesus at 20, and by that time was ready to give him 100% of my life, I found life. And I found a beautiful wife, a beautiful life. And, and God did amazing things through that. But I want to pray for you. Maybe somebody here want to get their life right. And so let's just pray together as loud as a church. If, if this is you today, the Lord knows you talk to God directly. Don't talk to your neighbor. Don't talk to anybody. But as you pray this out loud, you're talking to God and God's going to hear you and change your life this morning. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I realize I'm a sinner. And I need a savior. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. I believe Jesus died and rose again the third day. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's finish. We've got a few minutes left. Let's see if we can cover this next section. It says in verse 33, either make the tree good. And it's fruit good or else make the tree bad and it's fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers or you den of snakes. Jesus talking to the Pharisees. How can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is this is one of my theme verses. This is something as a father that I'm constantly telling my kids and my sons. And, um, you know, I don't know about in your family, but in my house. Every time the boys say something that's rude or that cuts or that, that's mean and, and then I get after them or I get on them, they always follow it by saying this because they think this is like going to get them out of any trouble or anything. What do they say? I was, I was just kidding. I know I said a really nasty, dirty, mean thing to my brother but, and it hurt his feelings. But now that, that I'm caught, I was just kidding. Right? Isn't that what we say? Isn't that how we kind of get out of it? We, we cover it by I was just kidding. And we think that now it's okay because you were kidding. And the first part of the logic, right, is if you're kidding, then the other people should be laughing to make it a joke, right? And since they're not laughing, it's not funny, it's not kidding, it's hurtful, and it's wrong. 
Now, now here the issue is that in order to, for that to come out of your mouth, it had to first start somewhere. And where does it start? So you can say all the kidding you want, but the reality is you wouldn't even think that to, for it to come out of your mouth if it wasn't already in your heart. And so the problem is a heart problem. So you got to deal with the, with the heart of the matter. You got to deal with the heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the reality is you, you, things that come out of your mouth should be a, a mirror, right? They should be a, a, a check for you. And if you're saying things, if things are coming out of your mouth, you, re, you have to realize that those things are in your heart. And, and listen, you can't deal with the mouth. Like we try to, okay, I'm going to take care of my mouth. You know, I'm going to get like the kind of the concept where I'm going to get a cuss jar. And every time I cuss, I'm going to put 50 cents in there. I was, I was working at the Boys and Girls Club in Yucca Valley. I was serving there as a pastor. And I'd go play basketball, hang out with the kids. And um, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Who used to run the Boys and Girls Club? Not Sam, before Sam. It's not important. Um, but it's bugging me. I can't think of his name. Good friend of mine. Anyways, he, he ran the Boys and Girls Club. He worked there. And um, he, he, had, he had a cuss jar. He put out a cuss jar for the kids at the Boys and Girls Club. And, you know, I'd come over and hang out. And then they cuss. He'd make them put a quarter in there. And it all stopped one day. True story. Kid comes in like fifth grade and he has a $10 bill in his hand. He's like, I've had a beeping bad day. And he puts 10 bucks in the jar and he just bought himself 40 cuss words and he's going to use all of them. That's, that's when, uh, that, that's when uh, he took the jar and put the jar away, the cuss jar. But, you know, the idea that we're going to somehow like bridle our tongue. But the issue is not in our tongue. The issue is deeper than that, right? The issue is in the heart. And so it's a heart of the matter. And Jesus is talking about that. And he says that it's the from the heart, the mouth speaks. And so deal with the heart. And, and it's a consistent. And then he says, um, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Somebody say, uh-oh. Did you guys hear that? Let's read verse 36 together. I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every idle word you speak, you're going to be accountable for it. How do you deal with that? Just stop talking, right? Like, how do you, how do you, you know, I don't want to give account. Well, here, I got good news for you. and I got bad news. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ forgives you of how many of your sins? All of your sins. So you don't have to worry about it because God forgot and he washed it clean. So this is the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Let me just read it. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to try to hurry. But I think it's important enough that I should spend a second reading it. This is the judgment um, that will send people ultimately to hell. It's in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number 11. And it says, then I saw a great white throne. So we call this, and the title over it is the great white throne judgment, because John, the revelator sees a great white throne, and then he's going to see a bunch of people who are going to be judged um, at this thing we call the great white throne judgment. And this is where every idle word, everything you've ever said or thought will be exposed. So somebody's going to be there at the great white throne judgment, revelation chapter 20, and this is how it's going to go down. They're going to say what everybody says. I'm a good person. The good old man upstairs, he'll know, he'll understand. Me and the man upstairs, we got an understanding. I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. And then they're going to get to the great white throne judgment. And God's going to say, okay, you're a good person. Well, let's take a look. Let's start playing back the tape of everything that you've ever thought or said. Uh, Well, all of it? Yeah, all of it. And see how, you know, good you are. So the, it says that, In verse 11, and then him who sat on the throne from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And listen, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged and each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into. So death and Hades basically um, is temporary hell. That's where people are today that, that, that don't go to heaven. There's a temporary hell. But there's also at some point in history, there's going to be an eternal hell, a different place that's described here. And it says then death 
and current hell, or Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so it's at this judgment that, that, that those that are not believers will be judged and all the books will be opened. But not to worry, you won't have to be there if your sins are washed in the blood. You know what's cool about the forgiveness of God? Hey, you guys know that new song on the radio? I'm digging it right now. It's the one that God knows me and loves me still. How's it go? No, it's a guy that sings it. I'm known and loved. The concept basically is that, that, that God knows everything about you. No, not reckless love. God knows everything about you and he still loves you. That's crazy concept, right? Like, you know, like to be loved and to be known to the core and still loved. Still loved with an amazing, powerful love. And God knows you and loves you. Now listen, the thing that God has chosen to do with your sin, which is so cool, is that God has chosen to forgive and forget. Two, two verses, one of them says that God takes your sins. And John tells us in that same verse um, that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. So, you can, so confess sins, repented sins, God takes them from you. And he says that he throws them into the sea of forgetfulness. Second verse in the Bible says that God puts your sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? If we took out of here today out of Tooele and we headed west, how long would we be traveling west before we start to travel east? We would just be going west forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, if we took out of here going north, eventually we'd reach the North Pole and then we'd start going south. Good thing he didn't say, I put your sins as far as the north is from the south. He said, I put your sins as far as the east is from the west, which is gone. Okay, God forgets. So let's, let's say, let's say uh, Dan gets out of his seat right now and he didn't like the sermon and he just punches me right in the mouth and just knocks me out right here on the stage. And I'm sleeping on the stage. Now, listen. I, I can choose to forgive Dan and we could go out and, and really honestly, I forgave him like it's good. We're, we're there. I'll even invite him to come back and sit in the third row in a couple weeks. Like I forgave him. But if Dan stands up in the middle of the service, am I going to forget what happened a couple weeks ago because I've chosen to forgive and forget? No, I think I'm going to be taken off when Dan stands up in the second row. Now, even though I've forgiven him, I, I can't forget. I can't forget what he did to me. Right. And, and that's part of the, the 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 thing about God is that God has chosen to forget. You know, we, we hear people say, oh, forgive and forget. That sounds cute. But it's, it's really just not a reality. Now, now I can choose. Listen, I can choose to. It's kind of late in the sermon to be getting this kind of stuff. But listen, anyways, I can choose to forgive and then forget in the sense that I'm not going to treat you differently because of that. I've forgiven it and I'm going to forget it that way. But I'll never forget what you did. I'll never be. I just don't have the ability to forget that Dan knocked me out in the middle of a sermon. And then if he gets up and starts coming at me in a couple of weeks, I'm going to remember what happened. But God. Incredibly enough, has chosen to forget. Crazy, right? Crazy the love. Like what, what's cool about it is, you know, I've heard people say this and theologically, I don't know, I don't get into it. Maybe it's correct or not, but I don't think so. But they'll say like, oh yeah, don't remind God about your old past. Like when you bring up your past or you're whining about something that happened or you're hurt about your childhood or something you did or happened. And they're like, oh, God already forgot. Don't remind him. Eh, I don't get into that. But it is, it is interesting. The concept is true that God has chosen to forget your sins. So God forgives, he forgets. Um, you won't be at the great white throne judgment, but if you're not right with Jesus, then you will be there in Revelation 21. And um, by that point, you've already committed the unpardonable sin. They're just going to stamp it on you. And then, and then you can read the rest of uh, 21 where we were. All right, just can I have two minutes? All right, so it says... Um, verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, what's ironic about verse 38 is that they, they, there was no need for a sign. They had enough signs by now, right? We've been through, those of you that have been walking through Matthew with me, Jesus has already um, risen a, a, a girl that was dead back to life. He, 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 he commanded the sea and the winds. They obeyed him. He's healed people. He's taught. He's done miracles. There was no need for signs. And sometimes people say that about God. Well, if God would just show me a sign, 
I've, I've witnessed to multiple, countless people that have said things to me like, okay, well, if your God is real, then he'll strike me with lightning right now. He'll show me a sign. Oh, that didn't happen. I guess your God doesn't exist. Because even if God showed them a sign with lightning, they still wouldn't believe. It's not what moves people. We already talked about, right? What is it that moves people and makes people believe? Come on, y'all. You better know the answer to this one. It's the love of Jesus. It's love. It's love that changes people's lives. It's the love of God. It's when you hear God say to you, I love you. And it's personal and it's intimate. And when you hear God and Jesus say to your heart, I love you, that'll change your life. In the meantime, lightning will not change your life, even if it does hit you. Miracles will not change your life. Signs will not change your life. And and so here the Pharisees with a hard heart say, show us another sign, O God. And Jesus says, no, I'm not dancing for you no more. In John chapter 6, remember, he he fed the 5,000. And, and, and he did this amazing miracle. And the people were like, wow, that was the coolest thing we've ever seen. The next day, big, huge crowd shows back up. And they say, Jesus, dance for us. Do some more circus tricks. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, I'm, not fe- I'm not feeding you anymore. I'm not doing any more miracles. And it says in John chapter 6 that that crowd went away offended and mad. And Jesus looked at his own disciples and he said, are you also offended? Do you also want to go? And I'm sure he pushed the door open. There wasn't one. But if there was one, he would have pushed it open and said, do you also want to go? And Jesus and Peter said, what, where would we go? You have the words to eternal life. But the point was, Jesus wasn't going to dance. And now here in verse 39, it says, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus says the sign that's going to be given is the resurrection. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, in the belly of a fish, so will the Son of Man be. Listen, the number one sign for you as a Christian, I want to encourage you with this this morning. Use this. Stand on it. It is one of the most powerful gifts that we have is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we're 2,000 years removed, so it doesn't carry the impact. But listen, just let let it sink in. I, I tease sometimes and I say, you, you want to start a false religion and you want me to follow you and sign up? I'll do it. I'll sign up and I'll be a part of your false religion. All you have to do is die. Let me shoot you in the face a couple times and then raise yourself up the third day and I'll follow you. That's all you got to do. Jesus did that. He died and he rose again the third day. And the impact of just that alone is enough that Jesus conquered sin and death and he rose again the third day and that's what jesus said that's all you need you have it i have it the resurrection of jesus christ and that's the greatest sign and then he goes on and he says the men in nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of jonah and indeed a greater than jonah's here who was the greater than jonah that was there jesus he says i'm here you guys know the story of jonah right jonah's the one that was swallowed up by the whale i had a guy tell me one time i was working at walmart this guy lives in town here i should call out his name but i won't Uh, he said to me, do you really believe Jonah was in the belly of a whale? Like it really happened? I said, well, absolutely. And actually Jesus believed it too. So I'm in good company because Jesus here believes it. Jesus talks about it. You know, if I told you guys, we're going to take a hundred people we're going to put them under the, under the ocean for 30 days. They're going to go out down in America and they're going to come up in, in Australia. They're going to eat well while they're under there. They're going to exercise. They're going to communicate. Um, you'd have no problem believing it because it'd be done on a what? On a submarine by the Navy, the United States Navy. It happens every day. hundred plus men under the ocean for months and months and months at a time. No problem believing it. But to say that God created a big fish that kept the guy under the ocean for three days. Well, Jonah comes up and if he would have been in the belly of this fish, unless God created like some apartment in the belly of the fish, which he could have like a submarine, but he didn't. Um, the white acid from the, or the acid from the, the fish's stomach would have bleached his skin. Jonah would have come out. He would have stunk. He would have had seaweed still on him. He would have, his skin would have been bleached white. His clothes would have been all eaten off from the stomach juices in the fish. And he runs through Nineveh, mad at Nineveh, hating Nineveh. And all he said was, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
And the men of Nineveh, at the preaching of Jonah, repented in sackcloth and ashes and a greater than Jonah's here. And one day the men of Nineveh will look at this generation and say, you have no excuse. Look at our generation and say, you have no excuse. One of the things that the Bible does, and I am done. I'm landing this plane. I promise we are, we are coming to a close. Um, one of the things that the Bible is constantly doing is taking away our excuses. You don't have any excuse. You don't have any excuse. You don't have any excuse. I'm showing you what's real. I'm showing you what's true. So on that day, you'll never feel like you got a bad deal. Like you didn't have enough information. No, you made a choice in your life to harden your heart. And then the last one is, is then we're done with this one. The queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Last one. And we're done. Um, this is in first Kings 10, write that down. If you haven't closed your Bibles yet, first Kings 10, the story of, um, the queen of Sheba. Sheba was located in Ethiopia. And, and, and this, the queen of Ethiopia at the time of King Solomon, she heard about how amazing Solomon's kingdom and his wisdom was. They say that, that Solomon built these hanging gardens that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And she came with all of these gifts to Israel to hear and find out of this king. It's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 10. And it says that she came with really hard questions for Solomon. And when she left, she said, it was not told to me, uh, uh, up to half of, of the splendor. And she said, the people back home, they so exaggerated how great you were and how great your story. When I got here, I found out that wasn't even the half of it. It was so much better. It was so much bigger. You were so much wiser. She was so impressed. She was so moved by Solomon. But here's the deal. She was way, way, way in another country. And she heard about this wise king with all this splendor. And it moved her. And she went to find out if it was true. And Jesus said, you have a greater than, Jesus, than Solomon here, and you're without excuse. Quick little side note. It's just history. I like this story because Bob Marley ties into it. But, um, and I like Bob Marley. So, um, and we'll close with this. The story is that the queen of Sheba went back to Ethiopia pregnant with Solomon's child. And so that's the history in Ethiopia. And there was actually lots of Jews to this day and a presence, Jewish presence in Ethiopia. And, um, but from this queen and Solomon's child, um, the, the, like the Rastafari religion and, other, and others as well, believe that that, that line that was going to go from Solomon to Messiah was going to come through the Ethiopian queen and not the biblical line. So they skipped the biblical line right there at, at Solomon and they moved to the queen of Sheba in Ethiopia. And then there was a, a ruler, a, a, a king of, in this line, in the same succession from the queen of Sheba and Solomon all the way down to today. His name was Haley Selassie. And so Bob Marley and his crew and the Rastafaris believed that this guy, Haley Selassie, was the Messiah. And what's interesting about that is when Bob Marley died, um, he died of cancer on his hospital bed. In the last days, he said, um, Jesus, come take my life. And everybody around were like, he must be delusional. Didn't he mean Haley Selassie, come take my life? Because his whole life he lived and believed that Haley Selassie was the, the Messiah that was to come. But the story is that, that, that Bob Marley, about three months before he died, was led to Jesus and he died a born-again believer. You know what that means? It means we're going to have good reggae music in heaven. <laughs> let's stand. Let's stand. Jesus, we thank you so much for this day, God. We thank you, Father, for, um, Lord, your people, Lord. We pray, God, that you'd work in each one of our hearts and lives. And I pray, God, that each one of us would just give 100% of our lives to you, knowing that it's true, that it's real, and that, Lord, there is, there is a hell, but that's never enough to motivate us to, to, to truth. More importantly than, than hell is that there's a life of love here, and we know that you love us. We know that you, you, you died to love us. And so, Jesus, we just respond to that love. And it's the love of Christ that changes people's lives. The fear of hell never really works, but, Lord, it is a reality and it is a truth. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you loved us first. And, Lord, let us respond and love you back in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.